again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. You may be seated. A few weeks ago, I was opened up to a new dimension of thinking, thought processing, and worship. It started at a camp on a Tuesday night when about 150 high school students piled into a gymnasium for nightly worship. The band started playing, they got a few songs in, and I really started to connect with the worship. And I was already feeling a little bit overwhelmed from the week and just getting into the Bible more and diving in and learning my place and what God wants for me in life. And I especially connected to the worship when they got to the song, You Are Here by Hillsong. My body immediately went into surrender when they came to the bridge, which says, The same power that conquered the grave lives in me. And that statement to me just brings me so much hope and gives me so much joy knowing that the same power that really conquered the grave does live in me, and that means I can get through any kind of rough situation in life, and it, it doesn't take any effort on my, it does take effort on my part, but God helps me, and that just really helps me out. And I felt like I had just been immediately overwhelmed by something bigger than me, Enlightened by God to go live the life that I was called to live. And after, the, after camp that week, I felt like I just wanted to leave and go spread the gospels everywhere in Mason and everywhere in the tri-state. And weeks passed, and I still felt like I was connected to God, and I started to slack off a little bit with the Bible reading and things like that. But I still, like, I still felt like I was right there with God. And then a few more weeks passed, and I felt like, well, I'm kind of in touch with God, but life's just too busy. And then a few weeks ago... I hit a gray spot where I felt like I, I didn't know what happened to that moment. All the magic was gone in that moment. And this is the unfortunate cycle of our camps and retreats and um, those spiritual events like that. We get so overwhelmed during that week, and we feel like God has really shown himself to us. And we think that we've experienced him, but maybe we haven't. And maybe we have. I'm not saying that you guys are liars if you said that you have before. And I know some of you had, but if the full power of a God who defeated death... And had the love to bear the world's sin and the wisdom to craft every detail in every life really did full on hit us, and not just us, but everybody else in the camp, then why is the world still in shambles? Why do we still have pain in this world? It seems like our experiences give us the, the in touch with God that we've always needed, and it, it, start, it, it sets a fire in our hearts to go do His work, but it doesn't give us the follow through. But on the other hand, the adversity that we go through in everyday life makes us take action immediately. But we don't really, uh, don't really get in touch with God to see if that's what he wants from us. And a great example of this is in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, um, when David's bringing the Ark of, the, uh, uh, Ark of God back into the city, when, uh, 
when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was so angry because his friend died that without thinking, he drops the ark off in a barn and decides to move on along without it. David was faced with adversity when his friend died, but he didn't, he didn't consult with God to see if that's what was right, and he just moved along without it. He actually didn't even consult God until he found out that the barn that he dropped it off at was being overwhelmed by God and being blessed like crazy. This is all too often how the story goes in American culture. Something has to be wrong in our life for us to get down on our knees and pray. When we find that disasters headed our way are already there, that's when we start going to God. An example of this was eight years ago, when church attendance in America was the highest, largely in part due to the 9-11 attacks. American churches became flooded because people were seeking shelter from the world and trying to find rest in God. But what if we would have taken that horrible situation and turned it into a glorious thing for God? What if we had shown them that God is not only the shelter from the storm, but he's also the strength to get through the storms of life? And what if uh, this would have caused a massive worldwide cultural change? The only way that it could have is if we would have shown them that God is just more than the shelter. If we would have taken the adversity of the times and we would have taken our encounters with God before, we'd have both the fire and the follow-up to change the world. So in your next adverse situation, even now in these bad economic times, don't just consult your financial um, counselor or whatever. Just go straight to God because he's the only person that you need to talk to when you're in these, tra- um, in these tough times. And maybe then we won't have to wait for tragedy to see beauty. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod, so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. It's that last part. That's the beauty of being a part of the kingdom of God, is that when you get it right, your connection with God, the the, the path that you're supposed to walk with Him, and your response to the one true living God, it leads to this celebratory party in awe of the presence of God in your life. And for just a moment, you just heard a nice message, not just a nice message, a powerful message from an incoming high school sophomore. He wrote it and he preached it. And that's the next generation right there. So one of those moments where we just got it right just happened. And we should just take a moment and praise God that we have high school students preaching the gospel still because there's hope. But bigger than that, we should go to God for a moment and pray for this generation. Because if in this church 
There's a guy like Cam Mosier. That's who you just met. Sorry, his name's not in the bulletin. He took that personally earlier. His name's on there too. He's preaching. Um, Cam Mosier, C-A-M-M-O-S-E-R, just so you get it right. Cam Mosier is one of the students in this student ministry who is called out. There are more. He's a reflection of the culture that's being built up here. And as a church, let's just take a moment to pray for their protection first. Because if that's true, that he can preach and teach the word of God, Satan is waiting to knock him off before he has his own ministry. For sure, that's coming. And if he's a reflection of what else is happening here, Satan wants to destroy it before it becomes a global movement that changes the next generation. So we've got an enemy first. And second, high schoolers are still high schoolers. So there is a need for wisdom, discernment, experience that they can't just, we can't just give it to them. It has to be given from God because we're not supposed to have it yet. And so for this to move, it's going to take the power of God in their lives. So would you pray for this generation with me? God, we come to you right now because we don't just want to serve out of responsibility. We want to be your servants. And so right now, I lift my friend Cam to you. And I praise you for him being willing to be your servant this morning. But I also pray for him an anointing on his life. That the voice that he showed he has and the connection with you in his words that he has, that his voice would start now. That he would be light to the darkness around him in school and in life. But I pray that he is not alone. That the student ministry of Grace Chapel, that the next generation that's coming behind us would be men and women who champion your name as their true God. And that you would call out these leaders with wisdom and discernment, with the knowledge of your truth and a path to walk. So that things on this earth begin to change drastically because we know that you have the power to do it. Protect them. Don't give Satan a foothold in their life, God. I pray that they would seek your truth first, community with one another second, that they would embrace you as their king and each other as the church, and that they would change the way the world views your bride. It's to that end that we celebrate what was just preached here. Not for Cam's glory, but for yours. We lift those words to you. It's through Christ that we pray this prayer. Amen. So much of our life is about perspective. I don't know what your perspective was when you saw a high schooler get on stage with me. I don't know if maybe you've experienced a sermon by a high schooler before and gone, and your thought was, oh boy, here we go. This is going to be a long morning. Maybe at a baccalaureate or graduation, you've sat through a few of them. Maybe you've had a great experience before and you thought, yes. My, your perspective is that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. But perspective based on experience can give you the lens through which you begin to process the moment that you're in. Maybe your perspective was, is he really barefoot on stage right now? And yes, I'm from Kentucky and no, that's not the reason. It could have been, but when I moved to Ohio, they gave me shoes. It was beautiful. Welcome to the state. But maybe your perspective was, I think I know, but maybe I don't. Let me change your perspective. Exodus chapter 3, Moses sees a burning bush on a mountain. He goes to check it out. 
to see what it was. It's God. God speaking to him a ministry for his life that will define his life for his future. And the first thing that God says is, take off your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. I believe that the church is the bride of Christ. And that when we come together to celebrate the presence of God in our lives, and that we come to exalt the king and and exalt the bridegroom, that holy ground can't help but happen because the presence of God wants to be with his bride. And he is yearning to be with his bride. And he's just yearning for his bride to acknowledge his presence, and he will change everything. And so that in moments like this, when I'm teaching, I love to be barefoot because I assume that this is holy ground. And I wait on God to join us and to overwhelm us with his teaching and his truth. And that's my prayer for you this morning. It's not that you would hear from me and that my words would transform your life. But that something still small in the words that are shared through preparation and through his word. And hopefully you're going to realize that you're going to hear more of his word than my word this morning. That the presence of the bridegroom is here. And he wanted to talk to his bride. And he wanted to work through us and in us and speak to us today. And there's another reason that I'm barefoot, and I'll share that a little bit later. But I just wanted to share that first part to maybe change your perspective. Because it is weird. And it's not normal. And in any other platform to teach truth, I wouldn't teach truth and say, Hey, I, you know, I'm going to come in shirt, tie, and bare feet. But I wanted to give you a lens to see. Our perspectives on the kingdom of God and on life change everything. This morning, my goal is that we would be able to see a perspective to live on this earth in such a way that we would choose to be servants, not just to serve occasionally, but to be servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. I grew up in Maysville, Kentucky, but my grandparents grew up in in Portsmouth, Ohio. That's where my dad grew up. And so occasionally I would get the opportunity to go spend time with grandma and grandpa without my younger sister um, going with me. I loved going to grandma and grandpa's house because they had bought me a big wheel, but it had to stay at their house, which was a good thing because my house in Kentucky, we didn't really have a road to ride it on. Like you would get run over by a tractor um, if you had your big wheel out. So there wasn't, and that's literal, not figurative. Um, And so I had to stay at Grandma and Grandpa's, so there was always an excitement to go to Grandma and Grandpa's, except that there was a little feeling of, I wish I could take it home because there was a big hill in front of my house at home, and that big wheel on that hill would be cool. And my grandparents just had this short little sidewalk between their covered patio and the street that I could go down about 50 feet and just drive it and then turn around and go back. About the time you're getting some good momentum as a little elementary age boy, you got to stop and turn it around. And then you got to drive it. So it's just down and back, down and back, down and back with my big wheel. Then my perspective changed. I noticed that my grandparents actually lived in a very great big wheel house. Because behind their house was an elevated alleyway. It was about 20 feet elevated above where the front of their house was. So it was alley, driveway, garage, then the house flattened out. And I looked as I was pushing my um, big wheel back underneath the, the awning done for the day, kind of fed up with just going my 50 feet and back. And I looked and I saw that the garage door from the actual, my, my grandfather's little workshop portion of his garage to the patio, 
lined up straight with the middle of the two cars that were in the garage out to the driveway up to the alley. And it was like a straight shot. And so I thought if I got my big wheel and we started at the top of the alley and went down the driveway, split the two Chevettes, if you remember Chevettes, split the two Chevettes sitting in my grandparents' garage, go through the little um, workshop area, onto the carpet-covered patio, and then off the sidewalk, then these big wheels that were, they were wired with great brakes, if you ever had a big wheel. You could slam them on backwards. If you slam the pedals reverse, they just locked up. And if you slid it right, if you could slide your back right, then you could just make it just kind of slide. And And all of that happened in my mind. Yes, that weirdness has not stopped. It's still, things like that happen to me all the time with big wheels. No, um... And so I take the big wheel, get on the top. My grandmother, it was a perfect moment because grandma had to go inside and get something for her garden. So she goes inside and I'm like, great opportunity. Take the big wheel through the garage, make sure it fits through the cars, up the driveway, get on top, and then let's launch. So down, into the garage. It's working perfect. Go through the end of the garage. It's perfect. Hit the patio. Lose a little bit of momentum because of that green carpet. Have to pedal a couple times. Then I'm all back on the sidewalk. Get right next to the street and then just spin it sideways. And I just land perpendicular with my grandparents' house. And I'm just like, yeah, Duke's a hazard. Here we come. Different perspective. My grandmother had gone inside, came back outside. Can't find me because I'm not on the patio anymore. So anxiety, looking around, yelling my name, Chris, Chris, only to see as she's yelling, Chris, where are you? Chris, are you around the corner? Chris, to see me go right in front of her, slide down. And her perspective is my grandson is going toward the road. Where's the car? He can't stop too much momentum. And she's, you know, just death is imminent for me. And she's there. I'm a bad grandma, all that stuff. And then I slide it and just stop it. And she's like, Christopher Lee Cox. That was the first time she ever called me all three names. It wasn't the last by any means. And I stopped and she looked. And then she looked back. And I could tell in her mind there was a little bit of appreciation of the concept. Because it was like, I never thought that he would do that. And she walks walks me back and she's like, do you know what you're doing? And I'm like, yeah, I'm just using that as a ramp to go down through here. And it's great, Grandma. And then I lock the brakes and it just stops. Wasn't that cool? Do you have control? And she's asking me, as a, she trusted me. She gave me coffee when I was six. So she's like a cool grandma. Um, I'm still addicted. And she's like, well, as long as you know what you're doing. And she watched me one more time. And then, she, and then it became the story. She's calling my mom going, you have no idea what your, what your son is doing. And she tells my mom, my mom's, and my mom has the perspective again of going, he has to cry. And she's like, no, but he's got complete control. He gets to the end of that thing and just spins it. When you come pick him up, you can, you have to, and it was one of those things where grandma's like, go take your big wheel out and show your mom what you've been doing kind of thing. And I'm like, sure. How much the church and that story so many times this summer, I've heard stories of how God has spoken to you through Jeff and his challenge to live radical, to serve, simple moments, all those things. And some of you just went on the top of the hill and you just took off. You just wrote it. And then so many of us are standing on this thing going, what are you thinking? 
that's just crazy. That doesn't make sense. And then we see somebody finish it and we're like, but they didn't die. It worked. Wait, we do that again? I want to see that. I'm not ready to jump in yet, but I want to see more of these radical moments. I want to see more, and I want to test, and I want to, hey, you need to come watch what so-and-so did for God. They're crazy, and it's awesome, and it works. And then we get offered the big wheel. And that's this morning. God wants to put it in your life. Here you go. Are you ready to ride? Are you ready to step out on a faith that says, I stand in awe of God, I long for an eternity with Him, and I live knowing that there's a new creation waiting for me. Because that's the story He's inviting us to. David had to change his perspective. And the story that was read to you this morning, that Cam began to build on. You see, David had just become king, and as becoming king, he was so excited to bring the nation of Israel back together. It had been fractured under the reign of this first king. People were still living in caves and living in all over the place in the battles with the Philistines. And David was a great warrior, and he had actually been living on the run as well because the king before him, Saul, was trying to kill him. Saul passes away. David mourns the loss because he respected the king. And he's anointed and set apart as king. And his response is, if it's good with the nation of Israel, let's bring everyone together. Let's go and get the ark of God, which represents the dwelling of God with us. Let's bring it to Jerusalem so that we can be united with God again. That perspective sounds really good. That sounds like the right thing to do, what God would want his people to do. So David gathers thousands together and they go to get the ark and they've built a a new cart to bring it on. There's a distance between where the ark is, where the ark needs to be. David grabbed two of his most trusted men. David had 33 mighty men that traveled with him, that lived in caves with him, that ran from Saul, that tried to to fight and protect the name of Israel, yet uh, stay alive and not have to kill this king that they didn't want to usurp. So he had these men that he trusted. So he takes two of them and he puts them in charge of the ark, his most trusted men. Again, sounds like a good idea. They get the ark on a new cart. He wasn't going to use an old cart. He was going to put it on a new cart. Puts it on a new cart, then gets his trusted men to start pulling it. Uzzah sees that as they're traveling, the ark starts to shift. He's thinking, again, pure thoughts. This is the presence of God. Stabilize the presence of God. We don't want it to fall off and to, uh, to disrespect God in that way. So I need to stabilize it. And so as he puts his hands out, death. As soon as he touched it. He dies. See, David's perspective was, get the ark to me. But the ark of the covenant of God is not cargo. It's a king. It doesn't get carried like our stuff. It doesn't belong in our trunks, in our closets, on our bedside tables, in our back seats. It shouldn't be the last thing that we approach in our week. It should be the first. It's a king. He's a king. And the fact that Uzzah reached up and touched said, you don't really know me. Because I'm so holy. It's not you, Uzzah. It really isn't. It's me. I'm so holy that those who have not been cleansed and are completely pure, if they touch me, 
the impurity in their life just takes their life immediately. It's the reason we have Jesus Christ is because there needed to be an atonement that was worthy of the price for our sin between us and God. Because God's holiness is so powerful, which we want it to be. His holiness wasn't that powerful. It doesn't make him that holy. We want a holy, powerful God who loves us so much that he would build a bridge between. David didn't look for the bridge. He looked at his guys for his men and he said, here, let's go. David went home brokenhearted. He had lost a best friend. He had failed in getting the presence of God to his people. And so for months, David chews on this. If you read 1 Chronicles 15, it's a partnership with the passage in 2 Samuel. David didn't let this go. David's men kept coming back saying, the house that this is staying in is being blessed. David said, okay, I think it's time for us to go get the ark. And so the second time he goes to get the ark, he takes the poles, these rods that go into the sides of the ark, and he has anointed the Levites again because they had been scattered. These men who were set aside as priests of God, who after going through a process of purification, were holy enough to touch the presence of God and to carry it, but only they were the ones who were supposed to carry it. And so they lift it up, and David stays down. And scripture's very interesting here in 2 Samuel where it says they put the ark up and they begin to walk and they take six steps and stop. Step one, no one's dead. Maybe we got this thing right. Step two, okay, let me count. Okay, we're all right. Step three, we might have this thing. We might actually be able to live with the presence of God in our lives. Step four, okay, it's coming. We're almost, step five. I think we've got it. Step six, okay, stop. We don't deserve to be here. He is too amazing. Let's worship him. So they build an altar right there and make a sacrifice to God, not because they were celebrating that they got it. They were celebrating the concept that we're allowed to have you. Do you really want to dwell with us? Some interpretations would say that then they stopped every six steps after that and sacrificed another. And that took time. It wasn't just a nice Coleman pop-up altar. It took time to build. It took time to make sure that, again, because David has learned his lesson, I'm not sending an impure sacrifice onto that altar. So he had to have a worthy sacrifice to put on the altar, and Levites come and do the sacrifice. And then there begins to be a party and celebration and dancing. Imagine our lives today if if the construct is the same. Maybe six steps could reflect six days. Why do we have church on the last day of the week? It's to celebrate a resurrected Jesus Christ who promised to dwell inside of us each other day. What if we woke up every morning and said, Okay, God, if it's your will, today I'm going to dwell in your presence. And we get through the day, and when we get through six of them, we're like, Stop! Let's worship. Because we made another week together. That's church. For real. I mean, seriously, that's, that's something that would make global change. If people were looking around going, what is going on in that room? Well, it's people who are so in awe of the God who got them through the hardships, the good things, the every individual moment of the week. They come into this room and all that stuff that happened to them just comes out in celebration. Dude. That's not really what church looks like, though. Why? 
I think there's three things that if we would invite and embrace, we would start to be that church comfortably. Because I'm not saying that you just have to dance in a church service and just add dancing. You're not going to hear that from me today. You're not going to hear, well, if you come in and just raise your hands in worship, then it happens. I've seen a lot of people with their hands up in worship who are faking it too. You can be on your face and asleep just as much as you can be on your face praying. It's not about the posture. The posture is a response to the lives we live. The first step, as we've seen from David's life, he had to stand in awe of God. We're created to stand in awe of God. He created all of creation good, created us very good, loved it, and he wanted the worship for it. And we, as a, as a people, as humans, have been stealing the glory of God ever since. Trying to make ourselves worthy of some praise. Creation, the ability to make things, the ability to love, all of these things, instead of saying, God, you give, we receive, we practice, we say, look, we made it too. What do you think, God? How do you like our version? He's like, not as much as my version. I built you to stand in awe of me. How are you doing in your life with that? The other six days of the week, do they reflect the life of someone who stands in awe of God? If so, you're on your way. If not, that's an easy first step. Read his story. And instead of going through devotions and saying, how do I apply this? Maybe the question is, who is he saying he is to me today? Just be in that moment. Just let it overwhelm you of just the presence of God and his invitation to us. But it's not left there. First, we stand in awe of God. And then even David longed for more. In Psalm 27, 4, he said, There's one thing I desire that I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon his beauty and to inquire in his temple, or to meditate in his temple. Paul partners words with this. If you have, uh, and you want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. It says, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us For this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Here's the breakdown of that verse. We're not created to just want to be here. We're created to have a longing for an eternity with God. If you're unsatisfied with life here, it could be a longing for God. Most likely it is a longing for God. We try to fill with material. We try to fix our lives here to... to, To get rid of that feeling like, I just want something more. We are built to want an eternal place with God. Not a resting place. A place of community. A place where we intertwine our lives with God. And Paul is saying here that we long to to build on what what we're given here 
in an understanding of who God is. We've been given his presence and his indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us if we have confessed Jesus as our Lord and Savior and been baptized into him. Acts 2.38 claims that for us. That when we get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it's Jesus' guarantee, as Paul is saying right here, I am guaranteeing that I am now preparing a place for you for eternity. You will dwell with me. And now our longing becomes to be fully connected to God. It's why Jesus in Matthew 6 says, store up your treasures in heaven, not on earth. Because you're not going to be satisfied with the way earth ends anyway. There's something here that I'm building that is a new heaven and a new earth that has more, better, couldn't even tell you what is in here because you wouldn't understand it. Be building into that. A lot of you in this room are married. What you thought clothing yourself with marriage was, what like an amazing marriage looked like on your honeymoon, and what it does eight years later is so much more beautiful. I thought I knew my wife when we got married and how love was just going to be. I was an idiot. It's so much better than what I thought. I don't know what 16 years is going to look like, but I've stopped even forecasting in my mind what this is going to look like in the next season of life together as a family. Because marriage is indescribable unless you're in it. Because the intricacies of the beauty of it, people who aren't married don't understand it. People who are married young, they're like, I don't even know what you're... It's a different language that you're talking when you've been married for that long. And then, after a season of time and time and time, the layer of love is so deep that it becomes an entire life completely than the world that's happening around you. We're the bride of Christ, and that's what he has in store for us. When you come into a relationship with him, when you clothe yourself with Christ, you start and think, I know what it means to be a Christian. God's like, hold on tight, because you don't have a clue. It's so much better than what you think. And year after year, we start to clothe ourselves more. And Paul is saying here, It won't be until eternity when we are in resurrected bodies living in a new creation that we will fully understand what it means to be the bride of Christ, heirs to the throne, accepted as children of God, a community of Christ followers, a brotherhood, all of those things in New Testament that we are defined as, as a people, we won't fully understand until we're there. But we're supposed to long for it. Free that inside of you. Continue the pursuit, the longing, and know that fulfillment comes with eternity. And that's the third thing that we have to know. We are going to be a new creation. This isn't the best that it gets. So we stand in awe of God. We long for something more. And we know that Christ is coming. That certainty changes the way we live here. And what is on the other side of that certainty gives us the power and the joy and the truth to know how to live life now. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It's a beautiful picture. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. What's that do for you? Really, it's not rhetorical. What's knowing that do for you? Really? Because for me, it makes me want to dance. It makes me want to bring the band back up. It makes me want to shout and make a fool out of myself. It makes me want to know that no matter what happens here, there looks like that. So I can endure the brokenness, the suffering, the hurt, the pain, the neglect, the things that are around. I don't have to like it. I don't long for it. I long for something new and something different. But I carry it with me because I know that by carrying it with Christ as his bride, as his partner in this, that we get to a shared common ground in the end, which is an eternity of that. I'll take that. I mean, seriously. I'll be there for each other. That doesn't sound like what sometimes is painted as the picture of heaven that we're all singing the same Chris Tomlin song over and over and over for eternity. I like Chris Tomlin. I like his songs. But I don't want to do that forever. This sounds like there's a new community that's being built. A new heaven, a new earth. And instead of us having to only have prayer as our communication with God, we get to look and say, what do you need from me? Who do you want me to be today? How can I join you? What are we doing today, Jesus? Because this is your community and this is your earth and it's going to be beautiful. And there's a lot to think about the fact that if he created it as this creation in Genesis 1, the new creation might look a lot like that. And our resurrected bodies are going to be beautiful and we're not just going to be floating spirits not knowing each other. There will be community in heaven. For real. And if that messes with you a little bit, study it. Please study that. Because there is so much scripture from the way Jesus responds to us and the way that people even during Jesus' ministry responded to him. Transfiguration. Things like that. That illustrate that this is a community that we're entering into. I'm in for that. And I'll serve today if I know that is coming. Time doesn't matter anymore. Because I know every day that I'm working toward this intimate relationship with God forever and ever. And if anything, the heartbreak and the loss and the brokenness around around me challenges me to work toward that dream even more. I'll leave you with this. One of the reasons I don't have shoes on is because two years ago, the way I perceived the church that I was in changed through the lens of these three things. I was supposed to preach on a Sunday morning. The pastor of the church had transitioned out. I was the youth pastor. I was all that was left. It went from seven staff to me. 
It was overwhelming. The children's part-time like volunteer came in during the week that I'm preaching and trying to do youth stuff. And she walks in and she says, I just talked to these two mi- mi- missionaries that are going to Swaziland in a couple of weeks. And they need something from us. And I'm like, what do they need? Because we have like, you know, 150 missionaries that we support at that church. And are we going to have to add one more? And why am I making a decision about this? I just want to hang out with kids. Um, all that stuff is in my mind. And she says, they don't have any shoes. The adults walk to work six miles one way and six miles back barefoot every day. The kids walk to school barefoot um, on these rock pebble roads every day. They don't have shoes. And God put it heavy on my heart to say they need shoes and we have shoes. We're Americans. We have closets full of shoes. And I was like, yeah, we do, don't we? And I was preaching that Sunday on love your neighbor as yourself. So I was like, thanks, God, for putting these two things together. He has a tendency to do that. And what I was really wrestling with was, would we love them as ourselves or would we love them as our leftovers? Would we love them as if we were loving the person at a yard sale? Or would we love them as if we loved ourselves? And the only way that I could figure out how to get that answer was to say, okay, when do we love ourselves the most as Christian church-going people? And in that church, it was a very traditional church, it was Sunday mornings, you still wear your Sunday best. You pick out what the best thing you got in your closet is, and you wear it to that church, and that's, that was it. You put it on, because you're supposed to. It's written in the third book of somebody. Church bylaws became scripture. And so they, and I thought, you know what, they'll, they'll have their best on. So we preached, and we sung, and at the end of the message, I pitched this concept for Swaziland, and I said, here's the, here's the thing. They need shoes, and we're wearing them. We have more at home that are leftovers. Jesus, were us, he wouldn't go get the leftovers He would get the best. And then he might bring the leftovers too. But he wouldn't justify the number of leftovers in order to justify us keeping the best. Because if we really believe that God is God, that we have a longing to be partnering with him, and that we have an eternity as his bride with him, these shoes don't matter anyway. And it was tough picking my shoes out of my closet that morning. Because I was like, do I, I, know, I know what I'm preaching on today. So I could stack the deck and I could pick a pair that I kind of liked, but not really, and bring my shoes in. But I got a brand new pair of Steve Madden's. And so I grabbed them. And I put them on and I walked out and I said, Sarah, what shoes do you have for Sonny? And she said, my favorite ones. I'm like, that's my wife. Which ones do you have? My favorite ones. All right, let's go to church. And we got to church and I thought, I knew two of my youth leaders that would do anything I asked. And I was like, we're probably going to have five pairs of shoes at the front of the stage on Sunday morning. And I'm going to have a pink slip in my box by Sunday afternoon. Because I'm asking the church to give all their shoes away. And we shared that. And I was blown away by what happens when people who are in tune with who God is. It wasn't the way I preached it. It was the fact that when truth is revealed, people respond. And the truth that people had no shoes was revealed. And the church just started like bending over and taking shoes off. And we had a pile of 600 pairs of shoes by the end of the service. We had everything. One woman had walked up and she said, 
all I have are these really nice um, pumps, shoes. Should I go home and get some tennis shoes? That'd be more practical. I was like, you know what? I'll bet there's a Swazi woman who's going to get that pair of shoes who has never felt beautiful in her life. And when she put those on, she's going to feel like you do every morning when you do. She was like, I've got more at home. And she, and she went. And there was another lady in her mid-80s that walked outside. And because we're human and our bodies are just falling apart, walking barefoot on black asphalt in late summer was going to be very painful for her. It wasn't one of those, we'll just suck it up kind of painful. It was, that's going to be really painful for her. And she stepped outside and she felt the, the ground and it started to hurt and she turned back toward the door. What she told me later was that she was going to walk back in and get her shoes, drive home, get another pair of shoes and then bring the original ones back. Um, she was like, I was going to honor my commitment. I just needed them to get home. And then she stopped at the door and turned back around and she said, I prayed to God, let me feel what that Swazi woman feels every day between here and my car so that I won't stop praying for her. And so she stepped out on this hot asphalt and walked to her car with tears in her eyes because it hurt and got in her car and drove home and to my knowledge has never forgotten who is, we don't know her name, but she just thinks of whoever has my shoes on. I pray for them today. I'm not asking you to take your shoes off this morning because I don't have any Swazi people that God told me about this week that need them. And you don't need that. You're Grace Chapel. You have Jeff Greer, and he has connections to the lost and the broken and the poor, and they're in all of the summer to serve brochures, packets, everything we have. The people are around. The question is, are you a person who is willing to live with an eternal perspective and say, as Philippians 1.21 says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I look forward to eternity, and I will live Jesus out in every moment of my life. So if you want my shoes, you can have my shoes. You need my shirt, you can have my shirt. You want my car, take my car. Whatever's in front of me right now, I want to be the person who is so in awe of God that I'm just thankful that he let me worship him today. I want to pray for you and for me and for this story that we could be a part of. And then my friend John Leslie is going to come up front and tell you about uh, a ministry here that if you're beginning in this journey, and this was maybe even overwhelming, a good place for you to start. And that's how we'll close this morning. Let's pray together. God, I give you praise for this church. First, that you allow us to be here this morning and to worship you in our meager attempts and it still brings a smile to your face anyway. That you're so in love with us that our small words of affirmation and for those in this room some large aspects of sacrifice bring you praise and glory. And I pray now that we would champion the promises that you've given us. That we would be spirit-filled 
that we would know eternity is waiting and that we would know you so much that each six steps we take, we can't help but worship you. Be our groom. Call us to you. Give us eyes to see the needs around us so that we are so full of you that we can't help but share that life with those around us. It's through Christ that we can pray this. Amen. I want to uh, extend to you an invitation, really an invitation to an opportunity that Chris alluded to, which is iChurch. A lot of you have been through iChurch, but probably a lot of you have not. Maybe you're new to Grace Chapel. Maybe you've been sitting back for a while and haven't been able to, to do iChurch. Yet iChurch is our innovative experience aimed at helping you connect, grow, serve, and ultimately change the world. Really everything that Chris was just talking about. But it's your opportunity to join this community. There's a real practical element to all that we just learned about our response to God individually. But it is also, as he mentioned, a community. And the community of Grace Chapel wants to extend to you an invitation to iChurch, which is going to start next Sunday during this service and meet for four weeks. And it's an opportunity just to get to know this community better, for us to get to know you better, for us to equip you and give you opportunities to find meaningful places of service and and of growth in this church. And so we want to do our part to make that as easy as possible for you, to make it an invitation and an opportunity for you to get connected. And iChurch is that opportunity starting next week. There is a card and some information in your bulletin. This card can simply be filled out and dropped off at the Welcome Center as a way to register you for that. You can also register online or just show up. It's, it's just something that we encourage you to do to join this community um, in a deeper way and to begin your fellowship with us. Even if you, maybe you've, you've been around for a long time, you want to come back through a refresher, you're thinking, wait, I went through eight weeks of our church. This is four weeks. We've gotten so good at it. Uh, we're four weeks this time. So come, feel free to do that or bring a friend that's been coming with you. Do it with them. We'd love for you to do that as well. It is such a, a privilege, really, and an honor to serve alongside people like Chris um, we're just we're just blessed, and I'm grateful to call him a friend and for him to be able to share the message that he did today. And, and I mentioned at the beginning you might want to help serve on the team to even um, help with raising his support through the auction that we're going to have. If you're interested in that, let me know because it's a worthwhile investment. But right now I just encourage you to go with the Lord seeking the eternal perspective that Chris talked about.